Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. It is only then that in verse 15, we see that Adam is put in the garden to do what? To do exactly what God did, to work, to work in God's creation. God does the work of creation and man does work in creation. And he is imaging God as he works. Man works because God works. Man works as God works. Man was created to work. And so this is why it's so hard for us. Sermon by Vodi Bakum on January 17th, Lord's Day service. to learn this connection between the head, the heart, and the hands, and to learn how 
to work and to learn the value of work. Um, and so I always tell people, if you want to understand where we are, think about the kind of institution that we are. Think about early Harvard academically and the Tuskegee Institute. <laughs> uh, put those two things together and that's what we're doing um, at ACU. And uh, it's, it's very rewarding work. And so all of that to bring us to our text today because I would I'd love to talk to you about today is something that we talk to our students agree, uh, about a great deal. And that is the inexorable link between work and worship. There is this inexorable link between the purpose for which he was created and the work that he's called to do. And the work that he's called to do is connected to the purpose for which he's created. He doesn't have some created purpose out there and then go do work in order that he can afford to do the thing that he was created to do. His work is linked inexorably to the thing that he's created to do. It is part of the thing that he's created to do. It's inseparable from the thing that he's created to do. And it is inseparable from his worship of God and his imaging of God. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, because God is the first worker. Now, usually we think about work like this. We, we go to Genesis chapter 3, and let's look there, if we will. Genesis chapter 3. This is usually the lens through which we view work, right? Genesis chapter 3. Earlier in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to the serpent. The serpent deceives the woman. The woman eats the fruit she gives to her husband. The man eats the fruit. And they fall into sin because they've disobeyed this command that we just looked at there in Genesis 2.17. Don't eat of this fruit. You eat of this fruit, you die. And so they've eaten the fruit. They're alienated from God. They hide from God. They run from God. And now, beginning in verse 14, there's, there's curses handed out. There's the curse to the serpent, the curse to the woman, and the curse to the man. By the way, the curses are handed out in the order of the, 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 the fall. The serpent deceives the woman. He's cursed first. The woman eats and then gives to the man. So the woman is cursed second, and then the man is cursed last. Same order of the curses is the order of the offenses. But look at this last one, verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so here's the way we think about work. We think that work is this necessary evil that we have as a punishment because of the fall. And so we work because Adam sinned. Thank you so much, Adam. Now we have to do work. That is, that is wrong. That is wrong. 
and I'll show you why that's wrong. But before I show you why that's wrong, I want to show you one other thing that we do. Go with me, if you will, and look beginning at verse 16. We make the exact same mistake. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now watch this. Modern evangelical feminism argues that male headship is a product of the fall. Just like we argue that work is a product of the fall. Newsflash, both work and male headship existed before the fall. The man was created before the woman, male headship. The woman was created from the man, male headship. The woman was brought to the man, male headship. The woman was named by the man twice, male headship. Male headship exists before the fall and work exists before the fall. Now, male headship is perverted because of the fall. Amen? And work is perverted because of the fall. Genesis chapter 2, beginning verse 1. Again, in verse 15, we see that the man was put there to work it and to keep it. That's enough for us to make the argument that work is not a product of the fall. Amen? But there's more. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. Who's the first worker in the Bible? Not Adam. God. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. In case you didn't get it the first time. Verse three, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Three times, three times, God's work that he had done in creation. And it is only then that in verse 15, we see that Adam is put in the garden to do what? To do exactly what God did, to work to work in God's creation. God does the work of creation and man does work in creation. And he is imaging God as he works. Man works because God works. Man works as God works. Man was created to work. And so this is why it's so hard for us for example, when we start thinking about work as a necessary evil, it's so hard for us to find that work-life balance. One of the reasons it's so hard is because we're looking at something that God gave us, not only as a gift, but as a command, and we're treating it as something that is evil. And it's not. Work is not evil. Work is good. Work is glorious. By the way, we're going to work in the new heavens and new earth. 
We are not going to be disembodied spirits laying on clouds playing harps. By the way, disembodied spirits can't play harps. <laughs> Our bodies are going to be restored and the earth is going to be restored and we will work on it. Because work's not evil. God is the first worker. There is nothing wrong with work. In fact, in fact, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that the sinful thing is when a man doesn't work. Amen, somebody. If a man doesn't work, don't let him eat. It is unacceptable for a man not to work. Here's what's interesting and quite ironic. So we look at work as this necessary evil. We denigrate work. And we not only denigrated work, but we celebrate not work. In other words, what's the goal? The goal is to retire from work. In fact, if you're real good, you retire early. What's the goal? Stop working and to stop working as soon as possible. God forbid. God forbid, we were created to work. Now listen, if you want to work hard and make a lot of money and save your money and be able to, you know, not you be in that field or whatever, and then take your nest egg and be able to, you know, apply, you know, apply your hands to another kind of work and da, 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 that's fine. But the idea that somehow your goal is to work so that you can provide enough money for you to not work anymore. That's unbiblical. That's sinful. Work till you die. Amen. Amen. And then get your new body and the new heavens and earth and work for eternity <laughs> to the glory of God because God is the first worker. And it is an act of worship. You see, our problem is not that, that we don't have work-life balance. Our problem is that we don't have work-worship balance. And we don't view our work through the lens of worship. And we don't view our work as an act of worship to the one true and living God. That's our problem. God's the first worker. Look at the next part of this. Look at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field yet sprung up. Why? For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. That's number one. And two, there was no man to work the ground. These two things are linked. So here's this link between us and the God who created us and the work that we do. Now there's a link between the world that God created and the man whom God created. Verse six, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Before you go to verse eight, I, I, want, I want to point something out for you here. 
Back in verse 5, we see there's no bush of the field, no small plant. Why? Because there's two things necessary that aren't there. One, the Lord God hasn't caused it to rain upon the land. And two, there's no man to work the ground. In verse 7, we get a man, right? What's the problem? Why don't we have all of this stuff before? Because we need the water and we need the man. Now in verse 7, we've got the man. What happens in verse 8? And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. We didn't have a garden because we didn't have a man. We got a man and then we got a garden. Because there's a link between the garden and the man. Fair enough? And there he put the man whom he had formed. By the way, down in verse 15, we understand that he didn't just put the man there so that he could enjoy the lush garden, right? Verse 15, we understand that there is an implication there. There's something implied here in verse 8. There he put the man whom he had formed. For what purpose? For the man to do the work necessary in the garden. So there is this inexorable link between God's good creation and the man whom he made as the crowning glory of God's good creation and as the steward of God's good creation. So first, we see our work in light of who God is. And so we're imaging God through our work. But second, we see our work as stewardship of God's good creation. Stewardship of God's good creation. This is ironic. And the reason this is ironic is because if you've been paying attention, um, the idea today is this. The idea is twofold. One, you can de-link the man from God's good creation. And two, it's a good thing to de-link the man and God's good creation. Why? Because creation is seen as good and man is seen as evil. Creation in its raw form is good, but when man comes and starts messing with creation, that's bad. Nature, wonderful, good. What's the problem? The problem is that man messes it up. And so what we need to do, for example, is we need to be very careful with the population of mankind because if we have too many people on the planet, then nature is messed up. Have you, have you been following this? Nature is messed up. So, so what do we want? We want nature to be pristine with no man on it. Listen, nature with no man on it is not good. Nature is much more productive with man. Listen, plants yield more when we steward the plants. They grow better when we steward the plants. I don't know about you, but I've been in situations where there's raw nature, jungle, bush, not too inviting. You know what's awesome? 
golf course. <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest, folks. They're incredible. The grass is pristine. The trees, everything is manicured. You, I mean, you walk through a, a golf course and it could be like a worshipful experience. And I don't even play golf. Because that's when the worshipful part gets messed up. But again, you walk through a situation like that and you see this symbiotic relationship between man and nature. And you see this reflection of the imago dei. God creates this world, this beautiful world, this raw material. And then man, who is created in the image of God, does something with that raw material that makes it more. Listen, there are other creatures who built it. Beavers build dams. Amen? They're not going to build the Hoover Dam. A beaver will build a dam and destroy everything downstream because he's not thinking about his work. It's not the same, but we build a dam and harness power of raging rivers and turn them into power and electricity. Do, do, you, do you see this? Other things can build bridges, but they're not going to build the Golden Gate. No, no man does that. And when man does what he does with these raw materials, you see something of the God who created the world and who created man. You see something of man imaging God and making, stewarding things and making them more than they are by themselves. This is what our work is designed to do. To make things more. To make things better, not just to make money. Hey, amen. Nothing wrong with money, right? Nothing, nothing wrong with money. Oh, well, doesn't the Bible say money's the root of all evil? Nope, it doesn't. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But we've shortened that to money is the root of all evil. No, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it's true. Amen? We don't work for money. We work for the glory of God. Do you, do you see this? Do you see what we're doing here? Do you see how we've taken this, this good thing and we've perverted it? There's a final piece here. Look at the, verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed uh, out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the Pishon, and the, it flowed, uh, excuse me, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. 
It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flowed east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And then we get to our text. And here's, here's the point. Let's look at verse 15 again. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man. He places the man in there to do work. And then he commands him saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So now God is, is governing man's work. He's limiting man's work with his law, with his good law. We work because we're imaging God and God is the first worker. And we work because we're stewards. And that's the goal of our work is, is stewardship and reflecting the image of God and the glory of God in all that we do. But then there are ethics around our work. Limits to our work. And these three trees give us a, a picture of these, these ethics that surround our work. I, I, I see here three types of trees. And these three types of trees teach us a number of things. Look at the first one. And by the way, the first one is, is the, the, the most amazing one. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight. The, the second one, we get trees that are good for food, right? Trees that are good for food. So there are these trees here. And, and what are the trees there for? The trees are there to feed us, right? Take care of the trees so that they can feed you. Amen? I mean, that seems just pretty straightforward. Take care of the trees so they can feed you. I, can, I mean, I'm sure Adam, Adam wasn't just a sharp guy. He's the sharpest guy ever. He's created by the hand of God before the fall. There is no sharper guy. Amen? So, when, so before you go blaming Adam, this is just an aside here, right? You know, people, we want to shake our fists at Adam because he failed. <laughs> He's better than you. All day, every day, and twice on Sunday, better than you. The only difference between you and him is you would have fallen sooner. He is the epitome of perfection. You know, people say we won't have a problem picking out Adam because, you know, he's the only guy who won't have a belly button. But <laughs> I, I think we won't have a problem picking him out because he'll be the epitome of perfection. Again, created before the fall by the very hand of God. Can you imagine? And so this sharpest of men picked that up immediately, right? I got to take care of these things so they'll take care of me. And usually that's the way we think of work. We just think about, I'll put in the work so that I can get out the benefit. But, but, but this other category of tree, every tree that is pleasant to the sight, I envision in my mind this conversation between God and Adam and Adam saying, you know, this one's great. And I can, you know, this tastes incredible. I can, that's another thing I can't even imagine. Can you imagine what the fruit of those trees tasted like before the fall? You got a perfect man, perfect taste buds, perfect fruit. I can't even, I just can't even, I, you know? 
And so this is great. This is awesome. This is good. What do I eat from that one? There's nothing you eat from that one. Then why is that one here? That one's here because you need a standard for a thing called beauty. And the standard for the thing called beauty is not you. It's outside of you. It's me, the creator. I created these things because they're beautiful. You need to create things not just because they feed you, but you need to also create things because they're beautiful. And your standard for what beauty is, is me and the beautiful things I make. And so we have aesthetics. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. It's not. It's in the heart and mind of God. And our job is to discern that. It's to discern that. But then there's this last set of trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The theological trees. The soteriological trees. The fallen redemption trees. And these trees are incredibly important because they root us and ground us in the fact that our work must be righteous according to God's righteous standard. Now, lest you think that this only applies to agriculture, you would be sorely mistaken. And I think the key to that is in verses 10 through 14, right? A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, um, and there it divided and became four rivers. Uh, I think the fact that this river is providing water for the garden is incredibly important, but then there's gold and onyx and delium and all these other things. That has nothing to do with agriculture. That has nothing to do with agriculture. But you better believe that the man used these things to the glory of God. Amen? And so mining and engineering and, you know, manufacturing and all these other things, it doesn't matter what you do. The principles here remain. Whatever job you do, you do it Imaging God, who is the first worker. You do it to the glory of God as a steward over this good world that God has made. And you do it according to the ethics that God has dictated to us. Pursuing truth, beauty, and goodness according to God's righteous standard. I don't care what you do. This is how you do it. This is why you do it. And this is what makes it glorious. What a far cry this is from work being a necessary evil that you hide in the basement and try not to let it out. What a completely different perspective this is on the beauty and glory and goodness and the privilege to work for the glory of God as an act of worship. 
worshiping the creator who in his creation is the first worker. By the way, the last Adam also identified his work this way. Jesus says, I must work the work of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. Jesus made it clear that he was here to do the work that his father had sent him to do. He's, he's doing his work. Whatever the, he, he does what? Whatever he sees the father doing. This is what he does. Christ is doing the work of redemption. The father does the work of creation. And then there is the fall. And then the son does what? He does the work of redemption. It is still God, the triune God, working. He's working. He's working to redeem a people. The serpent deceives the first Adam, and the first Adam falls. And his work becomes arduous. It becomes a drudgery. And the last Adam comes to do the work of redemption. And the last Adam doesn't just redeem us from our sin. Look with me, if you will, at the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. Paul writes, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly and wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen. And now... Where does all of this end? It ends just where it began. It ends with a garden and a tree and rivers. It ends with the last Adam and his redeemed people. It ends with creation having fallen, then being redeemed and being consummated 
at the end of the age. That's where it ends. And so as we work, we work in the middle of this tension of the already and the not yet. We have fallen and then redeemed. But our redemption is not yet complete. It hasn't been consummated, but it will be consummated at the end of the age. And so in the meantime, what do we do? We work with our hands. But this is our prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy toward us. We thank you for redemption that is ours in Christ. And we thank you for the hope that is ours because of him. And we look forward with anxious anticipation to the consummation of that hope. And we are reminded of the words of our brother John in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and so we pray even so come lord jesus amen thanks for listening if you want to find out more check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com that's Trinity Reformed, K-I-R-K dot com.